0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash necessary blackness. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from. You can access it from your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I would like to give thanks to the ancestors known and unknown, those who have paved the way For us to survive this moment of time and to have a reference point to use as a blueprint to deal with these hellish times we are living in. I would also like to give honor and reverence to the woman of the universe for your superior work, for bringing forth the spiritual information through the triple stage of darkness of your womb and giving birth to God. We would like to give reverence to the universe and praises to the indigenous. My name is Raheem Shabazz, and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. Peace and Black Power Family, this is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are here for another episode of Necessary Blackness Podcast. And this week, we got an exclusive interview. We're going to be talking about Larry Davis, and we're going to speak to one of his closest confidants.
1: The Larry Davis story is a symbol of black strength, meaning you have a system, which is the government, which is politics, which is police, and Larry Davis went against the system. Larry Davis went against the the norm, which is for for people to bow down when police come, whether they're coming for good or they're coming for bad. And you have many people like Amadou Diallo, Louima, the Eleanor Bumpus case, and, and Rodney King, and so many different people who... Bowed down to cops or was shot down by cops or beat down by cops. And Larry Davis was a resistance to that. Larry Davis was, you know, uh, 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 saying like, you know, just him beating his whole case, just him beating the case against the cops and defeating the cops was saying that, you know, as people, as a man, as a, as a, as a, a community, you, whether white or black, you must stand up for your rights by all means necessary. And that's what I think while Larry Davis goes down in
0: history. Probably many of you who don't know who Larry Davis is. Larry Davis was a 19-year-old youth who rose to fame as a highly contentious figure that was hated by the police who he sold drugs for, but celebrated by people all over the world who realized that Davis was caught up with corrupt police who demanded that he sell drugs for them. But before the drug dealing, Larry Davis was a musician who was on the rise to stardom along with his partner, Shams the Baron. Today, we're going to interview Shams the Baron about the 32nd year, which is the anniversary of the shootout of Larry Davis, which led to a 17-day manhunt that led to his arrest. So, ladies and gentlemen, a Necessary Blackness podcast Let's welcome our special guest that's in the building, Shams the Baron. How are you, my brother?
2: Peace and blessings.
0: What's going on, fam? What's going on? I'm good. I'm good. Now, we know that this is the 32nd year, and that's a long time. Now, many of our listeners might not even be 32 years old. So, if you can, can you take us back to the humble beginning and tell us what's your relationship with Larry Davis and what was life like Before the infamous day that the shootout with New York City police happened?
2: Well, me and Larry, we go back more than 32 years, of course, you know. uh, We met in the early 80s. Uh, I got um, some brothers and cousins that um, were very close to the Davis family, and they all hung out and stuff like that. Some of Larry's cousins and nephews and stuff like that. So um, I came to meet him through them you know, and um, we both shared, a, had a mutual interest in music, uh, and that's basically what we connected on. Larry was a, a popular DJ in his area. I, I, I've been popular MC, and, um, you know, we connected on those terms, became music partners. Um, the other thing with Larry is that he also played a multitude of instruments and stuff, so, you know, he had also the experience of being a Uh, R&B musician, in addition to being a a prominent
0: DJ. Many people don't know that history. They just know what they read in the paper, uh, social media. Um, However, there was several documentaries. One of them being the most prominent is Routine Typical Hit." that you was instrumental in bringing to the public also was uh, American Gangster. And there was also something on A&E, correct?
2: First off, the um, Routine Typical Hit was a collaboration uh, uh, produced by myself, Larry, and uh, Troy Reed um, under his Street Stars brand. So it was the second uh, documentary produced um, in that series of documentaries that Troy did. And um, we all came together to produce it. Then after that, we did the American Gangster episode on BET from season three, which was the uh, first episode of season season three, a Bronx tale. Um, the A and E show that you that you see was basically uh, it's still the American Gangster show, was just changed from the BET network to the A and E uh, channel.
0: Now I remember. Back in the days and I remember going into Larry's room and I remember seeing you and him um working on music. I remember seeing drum machines, keyboards and eight tracks, and I remember y'all doing a lot of shows and different things like that. What a lot of people don't know is that y'all was on the brink of startup. Can you tell us where y'all was at, what pivotal moments y'all was at in y'all career as musicians before? The world began to know him for the infamous shootout. Well, you know, um, you got to go back to the time period that that we're talking
2: about, which is like the, you know, from the musical aspect was the early 80s. And, um, you know, um, at that time, uh, hip hop music was moving, uh, was be- becoming a little more prominent than, say, the time when I first began in hip hop in the 70s. So in the early 80s, when a lot of independent records were coming out and independent labels were formed, we still basically were doing our thing in the parks and house parties and clubs and stuff like that. But um, one of the unique things about Larry and myself was that we also saw the value of being in control of our own business. So one of the first things that we did instead of us utilizing other people's studio where we were paying studio time which was very experience- expensive during that time we basically established our own recording studio and we began to make our own demos and our own product um, from that you know um i had an interest in distributing our own records you know we had tried to go to a few independent labels and we had interest and in stuff like that but the contracts that were offered were so horrific that we decide to take matters in our own hands and distribute our own product and one of the things that was uh, key to that was our being connected to um in my case I was connected to uh DJ Jazzy J uh from the Zulu Nation and uh from Planet Rock and you know Soul Sonic Force and Jazzy 5 um Jazzy had Established Strong City Record, I originally established on Party Time Records, released records with T La Rock. Um, he's one of the origin, original founders of Def Jam. And Jazzy was my primary inspiration of being able to put out my own record. So learning from him, it kind of like gave me that spark like, yo, we need to do our own stuff. But knowing how to do it wasn't that simple. Uh, fortunately, we came across a brother named uh, Reggie Powell who had a label, an uh, independent label called HBO Records. And um, with HBO Records, um, when he partnered with us, his, his original objective was to have us do production for his artists, uh, one of those artists being the Nasty Comedians. And when Larry had uh, brought uh, the idea to me, like this is who we're going to partner with, this is what we're going to do, and when I seen the basic uh, agreement... I didn't want to do it just as being producers. I wanted in, and more so because I wanted to know how the hell you how the hell you produce your, you, you manufacture your own product. And if this guy already did it, then I knew we could find out from him how to do it. So I told like, we're gonna to have to renegotiate that that deal. And we um, you know, he summons Reggie to the house. And I'm not gonna go into details right now about how how we renegotiated, but you know, and Reggie, my man. But we basically came to terms where he brought us in as parties to the entire company. So in that way, we had our own record company in partnership with Reggie Reg, HBO with uh in partnership with Reggie Powell. And that became HBO Records. Well, it was already HBO Records, and we began putting out records um on our own. So in
0: music. That's what we did, you know, that was our passion, you know, and this is before the streets. So for those that don't know, HBO Records stands for homeboy-only records, and it's not HBO, the uh, television. Basically, Labby Davis was Suge Knight before Suge Knight. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> nah. But listen, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about that infamous day. Of November 19th, 1986. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. This is Necessary Blackness Podcast, and I am your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are here with Shams the Baron.
3: Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognize no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought.
1: Yo, check out the award-winning docuseries Elementary Genocide. This docu-series provides a critical expose of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, and the connection between slavery, capitalism, and the prison industrial complex. This docu-series features Dr. Umar Johnson, Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, Killer Mike, David Banner, Professor James Small, Kaba Kamene, and so many other people. Check out Elementary Genocide, the school-to-prison pipeline, Elementary Genocide 2, the Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, and the latest install. Elementary Genocide 3, The Academic Holocaust, it's all available now at elementarygenocide.com. Tune in for The Drop.
3: I am Dr. Kira Taylor, and when I'm tired of listening to fake news, I will listen to some real news, and I will check into the Necessary Blackness podcast with my friend Raheem Shabazz.
1: Aeem Shabazz is one of my guys from way back, and you're now listening to his show, Necessary Blackness Podcast. Stay tuned.
3: This is a cool of Cultivated Roots Media, and I choose to tune in to Necessary Blackness because staying connected to my blackness is very necessary.
1: Yo, that's what I'm talking about, man. You'll hear it here first. <laughs> now our feature presentation.
4: Now the Larry Davis case shows you how the drugs would get into the community. It was through the police, right? And the police drink the drugs into the community. People get hooked on on the crack, the cocaine. It's disruptive to the family. And when it gets so disruptive, people commit crimes. You've got prisons with a massive you know, prison industrial complex that has come into being in the last 20 years to handle the incarceration of large numbers of black and Latino men. You know, this is why I say Larry Rep is a metaphor for a genocidal war against black people in America. And they've used drugs as a pretext to just wipe out a generation of young black people. To wipe them out. And it's a sad, sad, sad thing. It's a sad thing. It's another form of slavery, if you ask me. Peace and black power family. This is your host, Raheem
0: Shabazz. And we are back with our special guest, Sham the Baron. And we're going to go into the situation that happened on November 19th, 1986. But in order to understand that particular time, in order to understand that climate that existed during that particular time, we have to go back to Michael Stewart and Howard Beach. And then we have to go back to the 86-year-old grandmother, Eleanor Bumper, who armed, was shot off by the New York City Police Department. So this was a time that is like a time like now where black men and women were being gunned down by the police department. So Brother Shams the Baron, I want you to tell me about that political climate that existed during that time leading up to the infamous shootout that happened on November 19th, 1986.
2: Well, um, you're dealing with uh, 1986, right? So that's the the mid-late 80s. But let's go back a little bit and just look like the, look at the decade of the 80s, which they call the decade of greed, the decade of Reaganomics at some point. And then look at New York City in particular, where you had um, a lot of Wall Street greed going on. You had Mayor Koch in office. And um at that time, a lot of people don't see these correlations, but they're all connected. This is also the time where they had the um the rise of crack cocaine or the introduction. And um 86 in particular was sort of like the peak of the of the so-called crack epidemic. And um so when you look at all these different dynamics, you're looking at a time when there's a big divide between uh People with money and people without money, the haves and the have-nots, you know, and then it also break break down on racial lines as as well. So in New York City, you had a mayor, Mayor Koch, whose administration, uh, is considered had been was con, is considered to be the most corrupt administration of any mayor since Tammany Hall. So that's a lot of years and a lot of time, a lot of different mayors. But Mayor Koch administration, which he stayed in office for quite some time, he had one of the most corrupt administrations ever in New York City till de- to this day. Um, at the time, there were so many scandals going on. You had Wed Tech. You had Stanley Friedman. You had a whole bunch of scandals going on, including a major police scandal. Uh, I forget the precinct that that scandal came out of. 77th precinct? I don't know if it was the 77th. It might have been, uh, I'm not sure. I don't want to say the wrong precinct. But um, there was a, um, a major police scandal going on shortly before that. Um, and New York's always had a problem with um, corruption in the police department and stuff like that. They call it the uh, blue wall or the blue wall of silence and stuff like that. So when you go back to uh, Detective Serpico and, you know, you're watching the movie Seven Ups and stuff like that, which is based on that story of Fort Apache and stuff like that. You know, this has always been the climate in New York City. It wasn't anything new in 1986 because there was so much money flowing in different Uh, Areas and the political system throughout New York City, particularly in the South Bronx or in the Bronx, was uh, it was just extremely corrupt. So this is the environment we grew up in. You know, we were members of the have-nots, and the thing with crack cocaine, it was it was different than prior generations, like when you had the heroin or you had um, just coke and stuff like that. So you have to put that um into context when crack became accessible to young people to purchase um in in quantities and then to be able to go ahead and resell it into in the, envir- in, the in the streets you know it it enriched a lot of people you know so and people got rich in different um dynamics you know from the people on the streets the people distributing, to the politicians that let shit flow, and to uh, the, the police. That's what I want to get into, the police. Yeah. Well, you know what I'm saying? You got to think. Look at the average salary back then for a police officer. I guess it was like 22000 or something like that coming on the force. You know, just picture a, a police officer walking in or, say, two, or two, three, four police officers walking into an apartment, and there's... A hundred thousand on the table there's a million dollars worth of work. What do you think they're going to do? You know what I'm saying? You know, split that up, walk the other way. you know so this is the stuff that was going on all the time, you know, and in our neighborhood in particular, you had not all police were corrupt, but you had a group of uh, police officers who were doing this type of thing, and what they were doing was basically um, taking drugs from one drug dealer, and then basically creating distribution outlets to other drug dealers. And they preyed upon young people because those those young kids out there was more impressionable. And that's basically the environment that we were coming up in. Now, you spoke
0: about the police playing upon uh, young teenagers. And Larry Davis was one of those young teenagers. Could you get into the story uh, about how that happened, and what was that relationship between him and the police and bring us to that particular day in the South Bronx on November nineteenth, 1986?
2: Well, you know, I got to sum it up for time's sake. But in brief, you know, uh, Larry's passion wasn't to sell drugs. He never had a desire to sell drugs. His passion was music, motorcycles, and girls, he didn't have a passion for selling drugs. That's something that he basically despised. As crack started ravaging the neighborhood, and that that happened real fast during this time period, it started affecting a lot of the people around us. So Larry himself didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do any type of drugs or anything like that. He was like a, you know, he was into his health and stuff like that, and he really despised it. There were people around us that were attracted to the prospect of making fast money. And some of these people basically took on to that. But at the same time, though, Larry being the person that he was, he was always there looking out for people and stuff. And he ended up in a situation where in trying to look out for somebody, you know what I'm saying, he got basically forced into this drug ring. Um, And it was sort of like a situation where threats were made. And in order to prevent... Uh, situations from happening to some of the people that he loved, family members, etc., he basically ended up having to uh, get into that uh, that lifestyle. It was always a thing of trying to figure out a way to extricate himself, ourselves out of that uh, because we always had music as our side hustle, main hustle, or whatever you want to call it. Um, But it was just in those times, you know, nowadays you see people that have come in the game doing both. You know, this hustler did this and turned it into a musical empire, or this musician did that and turned it into a drug empire. Back in those days, music and hustling didn't mix. Hustlers were hustlers, musicians were musicians. Rappers were rappers. They wasn't drug dealers or gangsters. You know, the gangsters was the gangsters. It wasn't like we were trying to mix it or flip it or nothing like that. It was just that. We it was trying to figure out a way to safely, you know, get out of that and do what we really wanted to do. So when you 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 going up to November nineteenth, at that time period, um, well shortly before that, uh, plans were made to really leave the game alone. And Larry had made a decision. Um, things were going on in his own life that he was like, "Yo, I'm out of this. We we dead in this." And his decision to do that is basically what led to. A hit being placed on him, and um, before the shootout, and 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 you know he you know he had to maneuver a certain type of way, and unfortunately, uh, it didn't work out the way it was planned, and it culminated into
0: that shootout. In 1986, you were 17 years old. Yes, sir. Correct. Yes, sir. So that day, November 19th, is probably a day that you will never forget in your life. Could you take us back to that day? Where was you? What was your mindset? And when you heard about the shootout, what was your response? On the on the nineteenth, I actually was at the house
2: before, you know, Larry's sister house before the shootout. Larry was on was basically ducking uh the casa was out for him before the shootout. And I don't know, I can't go into all details, but let me just say this. We basically had made a decision to leave New York City and go to California, so the next day we were supposed to go out to LaGuardia, uh catch a flight, go to California, and just kind of like get off the radar from the police. That was already a motion um that particular night, I was at the house um and i was um at the time we was rearranging some of the situations we had in the street, so I had some some people that I had from um from from one of the neighborhoods that I dealt with, and I was kind of like um making sure that they were okay while we were away. So I was basically giving them something. And in the midst of that, you know, uh, I'm at the house. I'm with Larry. Uh, He basically made a, you know, he spoke to somebody and, you know, I kind of felt uncomfortable with the phone call and, um, not thinking that this is going to result in us. So nobody could have planned it or, or thought about it, whatever the case was, cause this ain't like the movies or nothing. This is real life. So we didn't necessarily think that, but I kind of like felt uncomfortable with it. And, um, I had left with my friend and went somewhere else and told him, look, we'll be back the next day. I'll be back and we'll take the flight and stuff like that. Um, Unfortunately, you know, whoever the person he was talking to, their phone was tapped, and that's how they kind of located him. And you know, um, I'm sitting in the house and talking to somebody, and over their phone, I'm hearing the news, and the news is, you know, it's just like you know, you could hear like it's just something going on. So I'm like, "Yeah, what happened?" And the person I was talking to, um, one of my girlfriends, was telling me that some guy shot all these cops in the Bronx. So I'm like, "Oh, that's crazy." And she's, as we further talking, she's saying, oh, it's crazy. He looks like Larry. And I'm like, what? So I turn on the news and I look and clearly it's Larry. So at first, you know, I, I start crying because I'm thinking, oh, shoot, my dude, you know, my fam is, yo, I'm, I'm automatically thinking he's dead. And then they like, he's on the run. I'm like, oh, shit. What the f- and I know now it's on for all of us. So you know, I had to get up out of where I was at, and you know, I you know I had to make some moves to make sure I was safe, and try to figure out where he was at to make sure he was safe. And you know, none of you know it sounds like a great movie, but this, this is real life stuff. You know what I mean? It wasn't wasn't a movie then. wasn't a thought of a movie. It's just like we gotta survive because. The threat that was out there, you're not dealing with other people in the streets or whatever the case is. You're dealing with the entire police force of New York City. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. FBI, you're dealing with all of these different entities. And it was off, it was just off like straight up right there. And, and you got the press that's basically running up in the hoods and reporting on everything. So it was definitely a situation where, you know, from that night onward, Um, everybody that knew Larry or that had any contact with him had to be safe. I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, and there's so many that, you know, that don't get acknowledged, that don't talk, that don't say anything. They probably don't want to say anything, you know what I'm saying, because they've always been safe. But, you know, um, it was a a hell of a situation, you know, just during the time that he was on the run, you know, and uh, everything that happened after that particular shootout.
0: What most people don't know is that over 30 police officers came to arrest Larry David. But when does this happen with the mayor of New York City and the police commissioner on the scene? It has also been reported that the police tried twice, not once, but twice, to get a warrant. And the judge told them that it was not enough evidence to issue a warrant. And that was brought up in trial. And what we're going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what was the end result of that trial, how New York City celebrated the verdict of that trial, and the end result of that. Stay tuned. This is Necessary Blackness Podcast, and I am your host, Raheem Shabazz, and we are still here with Shams the Baron. The suspect is known to be armed with a shotgun, 45 automatic, 357 Magnum, small caliber handgun. And an Uzi submachine gun. Larry Davis is described as black,
1: five feet eight and 165 pounds. He used to have a mustache, but he is now clean shaven
3: with
4: close cropped hair. When they shot the house up, no, but he ain't in here. He not in here. First time I seen Larry was on the news. You know what I'm saying? Every station, every channel. Nine o'clock, eleven o'clock, seven o'clock.
0: He literally out overpowered
3: that group of killer cops in my circle i didn't come across a lot you know what i'm saying but when i did meet him i was like surprised to see that he was on a level as these other djs larry
1: played the piano um uh, uh the the organ the keyboard he was in the, he he was too musical for me.
3: Eventually he taught me the structure of songs and stuff like that with bridges, you know what I'm saying? With verses, choruses, um, intros, outro, etc. You know what I'm saying? Larry taught me all that.
1: Back then you, you didn't have too many brothers like spending their money and into a record company.
3: He knew a couple of people in the business, you know what I'm saying? Um, from Jimmy Douglas, you know what I'm saying? Um, Bill Underwood who was working with his brother. Gene something. And he used to, I know he used to manage uh the new edition cats, Teddy Riley and them. And he hooked up with this guy. And um, you know, he was sending them the contracts. He was like, you know, like y'all don't believe me, I got this contract. You better read this. He gave us the contract to read, and we like, oh it's real. And he was like, yo, Sam, listen, the world is bigger than a block, B. You know what I'm saying? A business you trying to get in, this music, this entertainment. You know what i'm saying we got all types of people and you can't carry that type of attitude because you'll never get nowhere so we was all right we got girls we got all that we didn't have nothing we didn't
0: need to do anything to boost our ego ladies and gentlemen we are back from our quick commercial break and for those that are just joining us for the necessary blackness podcast we are sitting here with shams the baron and we are talking about larry davis the infamous shootout with New York City Police Department, the rampant corruption that was happening during that time. And now we're up to the segment where we're going to talk briefly about the trial. And one thing that people should know is that during that time in the Bronx, they had the highest conviction rate during the mid-80s. You had police brutality. You had racial strife which was rampant, not just in the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens. So, Sham, I want to ask you, how was Larry able to convince a jury to acquit him of quadruple murder, a double homicide, and two separate homicides, as well as the attempt murder on six police officers? Well, you know, um to be honest with you,
2: a question like that is really, really would be perfectly answered by Larry. Unfortunately, he's not here to answer it. The other people I would normally defer to would be, say, William Kunstler. He's not here. Or Lynn Stewart. And may they all rest in peace. She's not here as well. Um, So I'll do the best I can to try and um, give you some insight on that. Um, But I was... uh, one of the people behind the scenes helping to work his cases and stuff like that with him, I testified at several of his trials for him and stuff like that, and help you know help throughout the um the the whole trials and tribulations.
0: Now hold on one minute. Now you heard he said he testified at his trial for him, not against him. Oh hell, because no. there was a lot of people that um actually testified against him and.
2: Well, let me let me tell you like this. And this is, you know, because we can't go lightly on situations like this because when you look at trials and situations today from Trayvon Martin to all these different things that go on, especially in our community, when you're dealing with law enforcement, the police, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you really have to study the, the, the case of Larry Davis because with his case, it was unique. You have a young man who shot six out of 30 New York City police officers, right? He claimed self defense and won. And this acquittal was the first time in the history of America that someone shot police officers, claimed self defense, and got acquitted of the charges. So when you ask the question, well, how, right? Before we even get into the other cases, let's just understand that what we had to establish was that there was no justification for these officers to come and to actually you know, shoot at him the same way they do today when you see a lot of young people or a lot of men or women too that are getting killed by the police you know, indiscriminately.
0: So this was basically stand your ground before stand your ground.
2: Basically stand your ground before stand your ground. And, and that's all it was. You know? And you know, I always tell the story of how Larry, you know, my first um, visit to him, me being one of the first civilians to see him since the shootout, um, maybe like a week after his surrender. And, you know, I'm looking at him like, yo, you know you're insane, you know, and that's just a hint, hint, you know, you gotta plead insanity on this one. And he looking at me like, hell no. I ain't insane. You know what I'm saying? Uh I'm pleading self-defense, just to let you know. You know, and I'm like, yo, we not gonna how's that gonna fly? But when we got into the case and you start looking at everything that's going on, you know, you have to really understand that we really beat the case using the laws of the United States. We understood that. And, you know, you have great attorneys like perhaps the, the greatest attorneys ever in, in the history of the United States, uh, in modern times at least, Um, William Kunstler and um very, very much so Lynn Stewart. Um, they knew the law and they knew how to fight the law and they understood it in the context of dealing with our social issues as a people. And so when they, you know, collectively with us, under, they understood, you know, that there was no justification. Like you said earlier, the police went to the DA, to the judge and they asked for a warrant. They said, we want to question them about this, uh, this quadruple homicide and, you know, you know, we need a warrant to just run up on them, you know. We, you know. They didn't have no evidence. They didn't have nothing. You know, so that they got denied the warrant. So, if you look at the documentary I produced, you see that the officer is saying that he had to bullshit his way to get into the apartment, meaning that he didn't have justification to just walk in that apartment. And no one just let him in. You know what I'm saying? They had to lie to get into the apartment. But the thing is that when they got into the apartment, they ran in, like one of the officers ran in, guns blazing, and started firing into the room that was full of children, you know, there were several adults in the apartment and they didn't, they, they really didn't care. So Larry exercising his, I guess it's his First Amendment, right? Or Second Amendment. Second Amendment, right. Fired back. And, you know, so when you're in court, you know, they're saying one thing, Larry's saying another thing, but in court, you have to really bring proof of whatever your argument is. So, you know, it wasn't a matter of, as one uh, prosecutor said, theatrics. It's really a matter of the damn law. You know what I'm saying? So what Larry did was, or not Larry, you know, collectively, everybody that worked the case, what it was established, like we have one of the best forensic uh, uh, specialists uh, um, on our team um, who, through forensic technology, they was able to prove that the officers fired the first shot. So if anybody studied the case and they go back in on it, you got to study. Like, it took months of back and forth but with the court fighting this argument. Yo, who fired the first shot? That forms the basis of self-defense. If Larry fired the first shot, it wouldn't fly. If they fired the first shot, then he got a right to defend himself. You know what I'm saying? Why? Because you have a right to your personal property. You know what I'm saying? They can't just come in and do anything they want on your property. They can't just violate you like that. So this was what the argument was. And through forensic technology, it was proven that the officer fired the first shot. So when Larry fired back, he was in his right to fire, fire back. And, you know, um, I, I got to say this, you know, if you don't mind, but the disclaimer is always this. And Larry himself said it, so I don't want nobody to go crazy with this. Larry always said that he's never, ever advocating shooting police officers. He's never advocated shooting somebody, you know, without justify That's never been his argument, you know, and that's never been his thing. And he doesn't. He's never wanted anyone to draw inspiration from that. Like that's okay. But what he did stand strong on was that, you know, he had a God-given right to defend himself, you know. And in that case, he was. He had his ba- newborn baby there, you know. He had his his children, his child's mother there. He had his sister. He had. A, uh, I think you know there was other. He had his nephews there. You know, uh, there was other people in that apartment that needed to be protected. And he kind of, you know, I guess the distinction that he has is that he stood up. He didn't, he didn't, it wasn't even a matter of just trying to be brave and be bold, although he was. It was a matter of, yo, I got to protect
0: myself and my family. family, Absolutely. And you talked about during his defense that they used the law and the law was on his side. The law is actually, on a lot of people's side when they go into these trials. But seldom do they win is because of the jury. Now, when we study this case, the jury makeup for this trial is very unique and unlike no other, especially during that time. We're talking about in the mid-'80s. The juries for this trial, there was no whites on the jury, and the jury included 10 blacks. And out of those 10 blacks, Four of them was women, and there was one Hispanic man and one Hispanic woman. And a lot of people um, look at this case as a unique case because whenever we get arrested and we go to trial, you know, they always tell you, you have a right to trial and to be judged by a jury of your peers. This was actually a jury of his peers because many of them came from the Bronx, They know the political climate. They know about the police, about the corruption, and they rendered a just verdict. Well, let let me say this. Um, Let's be clear.
2: The justice system is not designed to be beneficial to us, you know, uh, poor people, you know what I'm saying, or especially in particular black and Latinos. And, And during this time today and during that time and throughout the history of America, the justice system, um, through its laws, it sound good, but the application of it when it comes to us has never really been good, and it wasn't good in the case of Larry Davis. So let's, I need you to be clear that there was a lot of blood, uh, um, metaphorically speaking, and probably literally, to be shed in order to establish the jury that you speak of. It wasn't as simple as, oh, he's cool, he's cool, he's cool, he's cool, and all that. What 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 it was was that and once again, people not just saying you, but people just assume that it's just simple when you fight oh, in these oh cases. Nah.
0: There was there was um situations where they was trying to put individuals that was on the juror that uh either had a relationship with correction officers or family members that was police officers, but it was through the work of William Kunstler, and Lynn Stewart and the other uh, lawyers that worked the case to make sure that that didn't happen. Yeah, in fact,
2: um, Lynn—not uh, Lynn—William uh, uh, Kunstler, actually, and th- I need this to be understood, because I looked at the Trayvon Martin, and it's sort of a different dynamic in his case. But when people see how you know the decision was made, they're not understanding that the prosecutor really didn't go hard in picking a jury. That would be, you know, that would be more um, uh, partial to the type of verdict that they were trying to get, you know, and that happens over and over again. When I'm seeing how long it takes for someone to uh, go straight to trial, et cetera, et cetera, I don't see that there's a huge fight in picking the right jury pool. So when you look at Larry's case, and I tell people to study it all the time, you gotta understand that there was a lot of fighting. Going on in order to establish the type of jury that we felt would be um, unbiased in rendering the, uh, the right verdict so um, it the jury the picking of the jury took months and the highlight of it was counselor actually going to, to jail for contempt or whatever because he wasn't allowing. For them to place the wrong people on the jury and stuff like that. And this is before we actually begin in a trial. We're actually in the jury picking process. And that was essential. Yeah. Well, you know, we need to understand it because we have cases like that now. We have cases that are similar to Larry's right now. You know what I'm saying? On either side of the coin. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you have to take the time to fight. For the right type of jury pool so that you make sure that you get the right verdict, you know. And so in Larry's case, you know, that was essential to being able to beat the case. Make sure if you have a right to a jury of your peers, someone living up in Riverdale, uh, which is the top upper part of the Bronx, is not a jury of Larry's peers. You know what I'm saying? So, you know... Um, you got to fight for that. And then you got to take time to look at the background. There were some members of the jury in some of these cases, and not just the Bronx jurisdiction, but also Manhattan. So there were people that were picked. They themselves may have not been law enforcement, but you know we were intelligent enough to know that we have to check the background of their relatives. So you had some who, they had aunts, fathers, uncles, kids that were- in some way a, affiliated with law enforcement. So in that respect, we felt like, nah, you know, you might not be uh, feeling this, uh, 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 Larry, simply because, you know, you got a, a uncle that's a cop. You yeah, know what I mean? So, for the yeah. police. We don't want him on the jury. You Absolutely. know what I'm saying? And so, you know, we fought for it. And it wasn't like something that was just because we wanted it. It was just granted. You know, like I said, Kunstler actually went to jail because, you know, he wilded out And one
0: of the instances where that that fight was taking place. And Kunstler is not the only one that went to jail. Uh, Lynn Stewart, who was a freedom fighter, activist, and a lawyer, she was convicted after being forcibly charged with aiding and bettering a terrorist because she was uh, representing uh, the sheik that was accused of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And she was actually sentenced to 28 months. And during her sentencing, she said in open court, I can do 28 months standing on my head. And what they did was they appealed her sentence, and the appellate court told the uh, lower courts that uh, they need to resentence her. And subsequently, they gave her uh, 10 years, and uh, many of her supporters believe that um, this was in retaliation for her representing Larry Davis and helping him to beat his charges. Now, me and you, we spoke off record and you were telling me some things about Lynn Stewart. You knew her personally. Could you tell us um, your fondest memory of Lynn Stewart? Yeah, um, if you don't mind, before that, let me just let me just say something. When she
2: got the original charge with the sheik, um, let's be clear, and you know she explained this, and you can you know people can do do the research. The charge against her aiding and abetting a terrorist was so ridiculous. What it was was basically, um, and please do the research so that you know it's you get the actual facts. Is that she in the court proceedings? They were all given a gag order. They couldn't speak to the press. She was overseas and spoke to the press. And on the basis of her speaking to the press, they acted as though she was giving information to other uh people that were out there in in uh that they call terrorists and stuff like that. So that's not that has nothing to do with transferring information as the media tried to portray it. That's the actual thing that they tried to get her on. So, which is why they originally didn't really give her much. But what happened was, through uh, through the Clinton administration, the Attorney General then, Janet Reno, um, and Clinton, they needed something to try and draw attention and make it look as though they were tough on crime. So Janet Reno was given the instruction of find something. And the thing that she found was going after uh, Lynn Stewart and using her, making her an example, you know. And so this comes straight from the President uh, Clinton and, and their administration, including Janet Reno, um and she became a target of them. That was that that was the one thing. But I can tell you that, and this is actual facts that, you know, this is not just the people saying this. Lynn Stewart herself came to Harlem following the death of Larry and at one of the memorials we did. After working in the highways and the byways, distributing flyers and spreading the word and talking and speaking to the people about Larry, she came and sat on a panel discussion and spoke for hours. And in that discussion, she stated that the prosecutor in her case said to her, off the record, that this has nothing to do with the sheep
0: while we coming after you. This is payback for Larry Davis. And that's the words of Lynn Stewart. Mm, you heard it right here first on Necessary Blackness podcast, exclusive. We got a few more minutes and. You know time would not allow us to fully go through everything, but um, we did definitely touch on on a lot of key issues. One of the things you mentioned was that um she came after the death of Larry Davis. There has been an outpour of support for him. I can remember the day vividly receiving the phone call from his sister Kat, and um she telling me, listen, she told that's his me, niece. Yeah, his oh, his niece, Kat. And she told me what happened. And she was like, listen, I'm trying to get a hold of your brother. And I called you on that fateful day to let you know that um Larry had died in prison. Um You want to talk a little bit about that? Do you feel that, you know, this was just a situation between two inmates, or do you feel that um there was some um nefarious forces in play with this happening because let's be clear you know the police and the correction officers is like brothers and cousins oh when you're talking about
2: in particular his his death and the circumstances surrounding his death correct? yes oh well you know listen I really don't talk about it because I wasn't there Um, what I will say is that you know um, from the time Larry walked into prison He was always a target of the uh, correction officers and, and, um, you know, people in there because of his stand, you know. And, you know, he's always had to fight um, and to survive and to stay alive. Um, There were a lot of people who helped him, who, who held him down, you know, make sure he was okay. We in the streets, you know, we did a lot of rallies and this and that, and you know, kept pressure on them to let them know that you know he's a loved person and that you know um, we're not just going to let him take take let let you take him out of here. But um, so it's always been a threat against him, you know. In the the particular incident that happened, like I said, I don't really get into it because I I wasn't there. You know, there are a, a variety of stories and theories and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying, but. Basically, you know, I
0: wasn't there. My next uh, question is, you know, there is always talks. we seen the documentary. The documentary was well-received. In, in fact, I think that particular documentary uh, opened the door for many other documentaries, including my own. You know, when people was able to see that we can tell our story and our narrative Um, I think you and Troy Reed was the first person to do that, followed by Hood's DVD. And after that, it was just everybody was doing a DVD. Um, Even when you look at American Gangster and different things like that, all of that started from people viewing the Larry Davis uh, documentary. Now, I hear there's talks of a possibility of a movie in the making. Are you at liberty to talk about any upcoming projects? And if so, what's your role in it? There's always
2: been interest in doing a movie. I've, uh, we've always kind of like turned that down during the time that he was out here, you know, because he was fighting the cases and stuff like that. And that was like the priority. Um, but in the la- latter years of his life, um, we felt we could use the entertainment industry, us coming from the entertainment industry, we felt we could use that to regenerate interest in his, in his case because he was continuing to fight for his freedom. So um, before he died, we were basically putting in, before he returned to the essence, we was putting things together. Um, since his, his, his passing, it was like, you know, it was a, like a difficult period. Uh, the interest has always been there and stuff like that. With me in particular, people has always come to me for the story or for aspects of the story or to do business with me to help develop it, turn it into a movie and stuff like that. What I can tell you is that, you know, um, there is a movie being made. There's other projects that are are coming into fruition. Um, The story of Larry Davis will be told and it will be told the right way. However, I'm not at liberty to go into details. Um, is is such a it's such a good thing, but it's not a simple thing because, you know, um the way Hollywood works is, you know, in most cases, especially with a story like this, one, they, they really don't want to tell these stories. You know, it's easy to tell the story of a snitch. You know, that's easy. You're gonna always get that out of Hollywood. It's easy to tell the story of someone who got killed, who they got to drop on, et cetera, et cetera. But when you take somebody like Larry Davis, who basically, as the police officer said, bested them, or Lynn Stewart said, or or as the officer said, keep beating them out at their game. They don't want to tell that story. They would rather that story never be told. So, you know, myself, I choose to be careful about who I deal with or, you know, how I uh, uh, project a story because I want to be respectful um, to the legacy of Larry, but I also want respect respectful to the family and friends and the people who actually went through this entire ordeal with us, including the supporters and the helpers, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody, there are a whole bunch of people who are parties to this in some way or another, and whether, you know, they choose to speak on it or not, you know, I personally am respectful for it because this has been our entire life, and we didn't ask for it, but it is what it is. So we are careful about the story to be told. Another thing is, you know, and understanding how Hollywood operates at times, you know, a lot of people like to glorify the negatives. They feel that's what sells tickets. And, um, you know, that's just, we don't look at it like that. We want to also, we want it to be entertainable. We want it to also be educational. We want people to walk away and get something impactful in a positive way. We don't want people to walk away and get something negative and to feel like it's okay to be out there and, you know, be about that life. Because, you know, the one thing I do say about the story, that there's no real glory in the story. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, you know, for everybody else, it's a lot of hoopla. For me, it's not a lot of hoopla. Larry lived 19 years on the streets. That was my best friend, my family, my brother. You know what I'm saying? As I tell people, he took me off the streets when I was a homeless little kid, brought me into his household, made me a part of the Davis family and gave me sanctuary. So when I look at him, I look at him in that respect, you know, and I don't take nothing away from everything else, but that's how I look at him. And But at the end of the day, I lost my friend to jail. I lost my friend, you know, at, at dying in jail, you know. So for me, you know, the story hits me in a different way. And that that would be the same thing that you would get from a lot of other people who knew and loved them. I know me, I kind of want to do this in a way that's respectful to all of those different dynamics, you know?
0: Wow, that was a very um, telling closing because I was there. I know what you went through. I know what it is to lose individuals that you grew up with and to see that their legacy is not being upheld. And um, I definitely commend you for all that you're doing to do that, and more people need to do that. We gotta keep his name alive. Um, I remember when he was actually on the run and Ice-T, at his concert, he said something. They had various rap records that came out. We continue to pay homage to him because he was a brave warrior that stood up in a time where many people wasn't standing up. And I just want to say that when this movie is done, that it will be a cautionary tale to everybody what the streets can do to you. Because anybody that knows or anybody that been in the streets, you know that the streets will kidnap you, raise you, and return you to your family to bury you. And it's a sad story. Right. Um. Before we leave, though, you was talking about a movie, right? You see them awards up there. I'm a movie maker, man. You think I could uh, get a position on the set, man? Yeah, yeah. I think you know. You already grandfathered in. You've been with this for a long time. You, you know what I'm saying? And actually, I did see a script that you wrote.
2: Oh
0: yeah, I, you in that? And, and I was in that script. I got a. I got I I don't know who's gonna play me because I don't think it's a. Uh, I don't think How long do you think that uh, scene was? Oh, man. You got some in there, man. You got some running there? Got some you, run in running. there? you got some uh, there? I might yeah. have to play myself, man, because yeah. I don't think nobody else could pull that one off. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. You know, one of the great things about the way we're, we're telling a story is that, you know, we're telling it from the perspective of people who was there and who really experienced this and stuff like that, but given your accurate portrayal of all of us during that time period, and and bringing you back to '86 and everything that that we experienced. So yeah, of course, you know, you definitely, you know, you definitely yeah. written in that.
0: You know? Yo, you know what though? I, I really don't be speaking a lot about it, but I remember a couple of times he called me. Mm-hmm. Yo, where Sham at? And uh, he would tell me, Yo, man, make sure you stay out of trouble. Blah blah blah. And uh, you know, he would always ask what I'm doing. And then when I started doing the movie thing. You know, he he was real proud of me, um, especially like the journalism thing. So, yeah, man. Shout out to Larry Davis, man. Shout out to the Davis family. Yeah, go ahead. I, well, no, go ahead. Well, no, no. Let me just going. say something real fast because you
2: just brought me back. You remember back in the days when we were and just sharing something with your people? Remember back in the days when we were in Boston?
0: Oh yeah. I was out in Boston acting yeah. a fool. Yeah. Yeah, and you came out there. Yeah. They yeah. said they, they, they yo, it got so bad, they, they went back to New York City, like, yo, go get his brother. He has to come talk to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were so
2: yeah, they was like, We need somebody to calm Raheem down. So if if you recall, um a lot of people always ask me, well, why did you get out the street? How did you get out the streets? And you remember, we was making a lot of money. We, had from, we was doing our thing from Boston, Massachusetts to Hilton Head, South Carolina. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So, and our network was pretty tight because we learned the lessons from our previous experience. But the thing that got me out of the streets was I got a phone call in Boston. And that phone call was from a prison, well, it was from Rikers Island, and it was Larry. And Larry had called me when we was on, uh, what was that, Uh, Dudley Square?
0: Yeah, Dudley Square.
2: (laughs) He had called me, and his thing was like, yo, what are you doing? And I'm like, how did you get this number? (laughs) You know, but my kid's mother had gave him the number. And he's like, you know, and I don't share this. This is actually the first time I'm publicly sharing this story. But he had had asked me like, yo, I know you're not selling drugs. And I'm like- You know, telling him, how you know? I'm like, oh, shoot. Like, he, you know, he knows what's going on. So he's like, listen. He said, don't do that. You don't want to be where I'm at. This jail stuff is not for none of us. This is for animals. And none of us are animals. If I could change this, I would change it. You too smart for jail. And that's all you're going to end up being, someone in jail. And he, he said, listen, man, you know, on top of that, you know, I'm fighting for my freedom. And I need your help. So are you going to choose the money over me? Are you going to choose that type of lifestyle? And it was
0: then that I made the decision to leave it alone. You know what? Now that you're talking about it, I'm trying to do the timeline in my head. And I'm like... Okay, that was around the time that he started going to trial and then you went back down there and yeah, cuz you, you you was up you was you was up I, with us for a minute. I ain't gonna lie, when he asked me, he said, "You going to choose?" I I was over there looking at that
2: big stack like, "Yo, lad, could you give me a couple of days to think about this?" You know, but it was not. It was like, you know, like at the end of the day, this, you know, my loyalty, you know what I'm saying? This is I never forgot. You know, when he realized that I was homeless back in them days and, and he basically was like, yo, nah, my mother owned three houses. As long as I'm and my mother's alive, you got a place to stay. You know, and I never forgot that. So when it came down to it, it was like, yo, Ra I'll catch y'all on the comeback.
0: And yo, even even when um he was in jail, you still stayed at one of the houses. Yeah. I rolled. And then on. remember, yeah. remember when I got kicked out of the house? Yeah, you, you stayed let, with us in the I, house. You let me stay there with you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I stayed for a week. <laughs> and I was like, yo, I'm out of here. You might be my older brother, but you ain't gonna keep telling me what to do. Yeah. But yeah, man, those was fun times, mm-hmm. man. And um shout out to Waterbed Craig. Oh yeah, my brother uh, uh, Craig, my, my brother uh, Suave, Sukiyaki, Brian, uh, Brian uh, Shorty, Barry. rest in peace to Shorty, Barry, Marky, Nasheen. The, the entire whole, Davis family. Yeah, the whole 165th family. at Woody Crest, Anderson Avenue, yeah. West Side, yeah. the best side. Yeah. Peace and Black Power, man. This is Raheem Shabazz. You know, I don't really you know, get into my history and tell my story all the time. But this is Sham's story. Yeah. I'm just a small (laughs) footnote in it. But You was with us. No, I wasn't. (laughs) In that script. How many roles I got, man?
2: Well we gonna have to look to it. Um, you know, you you got some running there.
0: I got some run in there. Ah man, I got to play me, man. If I ain't got a lot of if I ain't got a lot of scenes man we're gonna have to renegotiate this contract <laughs> but yo man, make sure y'all stay tuned, man and another thing man there's a lot of people right that um gonna listen to this interview and they're gonna be intrigued and they're gonna wanna follow you on social media so they can keep abreast on when the movie's coming out. Um, I know you're a very private person. You already know what I'm going to say. Well, don't... You You find me
2: where you find me. But what you can do is you can go on to uh, YouTube and, you know, just basic Google Google search and just punch in Larry Davis. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Look up the Larry Davis story. uh, Watch the documentaries. There's about four documentaries out there that you can go and you can get more information about it. You know, you'll hear more about me and stuff like that, but, you know, you know how it go. Yeah,
0: that's always... The last question I asked my guests is to um, plug their social media and different things like that. And I knew I was like, you know what? That's a customary question. I'm going to ask it, but I already know the answer. He is not letting y'all know where to find them. He ain't getting the phone number. He ain't getting the email. But um, if anybody um, want to follow up, you know, maybe you are um, interested in um, the movie. Um, you can always hit me up and um, I could probably deliver the message. I don't know. We'll see. But um, next week, same time, same place, I thank each and every one of y'all for joining us right here on Necessary Blackness Podcast. And remember that we do not accept money or donations from third-party entities. This is a self-funded platform. And to continue... To be that voice of reason and that voice of truth. We ask that you support us. We have the Necessary Blackness Podcast t-shirt. We also have the Malcolm X t-shirt that has been a hot seller. And we also have the Elementary Genocide DVD 1, Elementary Genocide 2, and Elementary Genocide 3. So make sure you go to elementarygenocide.com and continue to support us so we can be that independent voice. Because don't nobody pay these bills over here except me. And I'm going to continue to pay these bills. I'm going to continue to be that independent voice. And we're going to tell the truth regardless to who it might offend. Peace and black power, family. I'm out of here.